For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Uh, a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, uh, this uh, morning we're going to be talking about forgiveness and the red mist. The red mist does not refer to the footballer in this video that we're about to uh, watch, but re red mist refers to anger. But I thought, let me give you an example of some anger. So here's a little video clip. So it says September 1997. Roy Keane bursting into the penalty area and had a flick at Holland and I think he did his knee ligament and that was the year that uh, Arsenal went on to win the championship. Oh, Roy Keane on Holland. David Ellery has a record of dismissing Roy Keane from the field of play. It's a red card. Issued by David Ellery to Manchester United's captain for the fourth time. Wow, what a tackle. I also, it could be a talk on resurrection, the way that Roy Keane amazingly rose from the turf, Ellen Road turf, to, to confront Howland, having to tearing his cruciate ligament. Uh -huh. Anyway, it wasn't a dig on Man United or a plug on Leeds, but at that time, I remember people were like really staggered by the kind of smouldering anger and the bitter contempt and the violent rage that practically ended Alfie Harlan's career. The Man United fans in the church, and there's far too many of them, they say, no, no, he never ended his career. And they were expecting uh, Alfie Harlan's son to sign for them. It's not going to happen. But, um, you know, it's funny, we think, oh, Roy Keane, he's still, uh, still a Sky Sports pundit, and he still kind of seems angry all the time. And it's easy to point the finger at him and think, well, you know, well, he's got an anger problem. But the reality, you just have to drive around for a little bit and realize that, that actually there's an anger problem below the surface. You know, I, I don't know who that is. I, I, it took me a while to find some to you or you, but, you know, it's... <laughs> That, that, if, if that's happened to you, or you've done that, it's amazing how behind a little bit of metal and glass we can suspend the kind of normal social conventions uh, that mean that we don't do that to each other. You know, occasionally people do that to each other and then step outside their cars and want to kind of go for it. But I mean, there's this kind of insiders, there's this kind of anger it's not that driving's so stressful, it's that we feel we can get away with it. We can feel that we can allow the kind of, uh, the red mist to descend and, and the contempt that's hiding in all of us, perhaps, um, rise up. And, and anger is everywhere, right? Anger is everywhere. But forgiveness is really hard to find. And last week we heard Jesus exhort his hearers not to be just do good on the outside, to be merely outwardly good, but to and follow the rules and social conventions, but, but, but actually to, to have a righteousness of the heart. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount's all about. It's about having this righteousness of the heart. And, and we remember we said that actually um, there's a promise that God would give us a new heart in Jeremiah, and, and the way he was going to do that was by forgiving our sins. 
So it's no surprise then, then when, when Jesus begins his practical application of his discourse on the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you've heard it said, but now I say to you, it's not surprising the first thing that he starts with is anger and forgiveness. Because that's what creates community. And, 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 and Jesus understands that you can't do life in isolation, you know, he, he's going to talk to us as we go through this series. He's going to talk to us about how, how we live together in community. You know, the, the, it's a myth that the Christian life is you have some personal faith in Jesus and then that means you go to heaven when you die. No, we're joined to his body, collected as part of him, part of community. And Jesus, in this kind of keynote Sermon on the Mount, is going to talk to us about how to be people who relate together and anger and forgiveness is right at the heart of that. So let's read some passages that may be familiar to you, that may not be. Let's see how we go. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard it said uh, to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be stand guilty before the law. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with another is, will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to another, Raka, is answerable to the court. That raka, uh, people have got different views of what it means, but it, I think I, the one I like is it's, well, the one I go with, I don't like. It's sound, it's, it's, it actually means empty, but the noise sounds like somebody clearing their s- s- uh, throat to spit. It's like, you're nothing. And then it says, and anyone who says you fool be in, da- in danger of the fires of hell. And again, you fool isn't like, oh, you're not very clever, you're not very good at quizzes, you didn't do well in your GCSEs. Uh, you fool is the equivalent, because a biblical fool is somebody who believes there is no God. And, and basically, it's, what he's saying is, if you say to someone, go to hell, he's saying you're also in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary or enemy who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary will hand you over to, may hand you over to the judge and the judge will hand you over to the officer and you'll be thrown in prison These are telling words. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the full debt. Father, we just pray as we look at these words of Jesus that drill beyond just outward conformity to the depths of our hearts. Lord, we know that for so many of us, there is a smoldering anger. We just know that it happens. We surprise ourselves. Where did that come from? And Lord, we want your... Spirit to work right down in those deep places, to bring grace and transformation, to make us a a community that's different, a city on a hill, the light of the world. Amen. So my first point is destructive anger and contempt, and this is a longer point because I'm basically, so you think, man, if the three points like this, we're never going to get home. That may be true, but hey. So, I mean, I said last week, you know, if you said, hands up if you, if you've, you know, if you've not murdered anyone, you know, the reality is we're all going to think, hey, I'm doing great. You know, that's one, that's 10% of the Ten Commandments I'm smashing. You know, I haven't murdered anyone. Great, you know, brilliant, cause of celebration, hands up, high fives round if you haven't murdered anyone. And he wants to think, well, I'm, I'm doing great. And then Jesus kind of turns it on his head, doesn't he, and say, hang on a minute. If you're angry with, a, if you're angry with your brother or sister, it's the same. You'll be still 
subject to judgment. And, and Jesus is not saying that murder and anger are the moral equivalents. He's not saying, well, anger is as, as, as the same as murder, so if you feel angry, you may as well go murder them, because in the end, it's, he's not saying that. And he's not setting out a kind of a judicial sentencing policy. You know, this, if you say raka, this is what happens to you. If you say go to hell, this is what happens to you. He's not setting out a sentence policy. What he's doing is taking us deeper into the texture of our hearts. And he's asking the heart question, what do you like inside? What's, where's anger inside? Jesus is saying that anger can be as destructive in its consequences as murder, that, that, that the fruit which is murder or violence has the same bitter root in the heart of us. When, you, when you're angry, what, what the outward is that you really want to damage someone else. You, you want to do violence on them. Or you want to do it by raising your voice. Or you might be those people that don't do it by speaking at all. I don't know which your technique is. Or maybe you want to look at them. And maybe you don't. Or maybe, you know, but the intent with anger is to wound the person that's hers. We want to pay them back. So when a stranger cuts in front of us in, the, in traffic, or we cut in front of them in traffic, or the, or the Tesco's queue, you know, suddenly this anger rises up. I mean, I felt it as I'm driving in this morning, you know, I, I, somebody pulled out of a side street by the university, and, and I thought, how dare they? This is my space. How dare they? And it's like, I'm thinking, oh, I better be careful. I'm about to, I'm about to speak on this. And it was like so easy. Because, and there was something about, this is me, and you are, you're, you're intruding on me. And we act out of all proportion, you know, and suddenly we're shouting and gesturing and winding down windows. I don't know if I told you this story. One time I'm in Manchester. I pulled, did I tell you this story? I might have, I've told you this story already. I pulled up in the traffic lights, and I'd cut in front of this person because, you know, it's all about me, isn't it? And I was trying to get in front, and this person was quite cross. So we're at the lights. It's ram, ram, ram. And then this person's really cross, and she sat, suddenly there's a window wound down, and a face comes at the window. And then I turn to, to the window, and, and I'm a bit angry, and then I realize she goes to the church that I lead <laughs> in Manchester. And suddenly we were rumbled. <laughs> whoa, where did that come from? And we all like, we had a little laugh about it, but we thought, whoa. But, you know, you find... The anger doesn't just rise up in, on the road. It, ri- it rises up like with those you love. You know, I mean, many, some of you might be hedgehogs. Never have a row, just curl into your ball. But, you know, we have to apologize to our kids, don't we, Nays? Yeah, we have to apologize to our kids. I'm really sorry. We have probably not modeled really calm resolution there, me and I, kind of shouting and stuff. You know, I won't tell you the worst of it. But, hey, what, and you think, I love this woman. She loves me, but anger rises up so easily, doesn't it? And anger flows from this, as I've said, this reservoir of the wounded self that sometimes has nothing to do with somebody cutting you up in traffic or giving you too much broccoli. Uh, It's something else completely. You know, and and anger and the wounded ego and the the crushed pride, suddenly, you know, our toes are trodden on, our noses are put out of joint, the adrenaline flows, and the heartbeat quickens, our focus becomes intent, and we're ready for a fight. This is Roy Keane describing the incident that I showed you. Saturday's game away to Leeds, I was in no shape at all. This is not... Me, this is Roy Keane, in case you're just worried, okay. For Saturday's game away to Leeds, I was in no shape at all. Too little sleep 
This is Roy Keane all over. I'd been involved in a drunken brawl two nights before, and I'd spent, this is so interesting, spent too much emotion on my despair. Leeds was a tough place to go. Anyway, it was, past tense. It's easy now, and they lose all the time. Uh, Leeds took a 1-0 lead, and I was having a nightmare. It was awful. Throughout the game, I'd been having this private feud with Alfie Harland. He was winding me up from the beginning of the game. The late tackles I could live with, that's a normal part of the game. But the other stuff, pulling my shirt, getting digs in off the ball, really bugged me. At times, Harland wasn't even following the play, just concentrating on me. With five minutes to go, our unbeaten run looked set to end. I lunged in desperation at Harland. I was... Trying to trip him rather than kick him, I knew it was a booking, and I, but he'd done his job. He'd, got my, he'd done my head in. I slid in and my studs caught in the turf and I heard the ligaments in my knee snap. The pain was agonizing. Oh, I did get up afterwards and run after him, so, you know, let's take everything in context. Pain was agonizing. Harland and Weatherall, the Leeds player, stood over me and shouting, Stop! I've taken a lot of swear words out of this, by the way. I've taken a lot of swear words out. I he says, I never f forgot Harlan's contempt as I lay on the Ellen Road pitch. And there's something we hear. We can see Roy Keane in his autobiography. He's showing us a little bit of his inner self. He's showing us that perceived injustice, his, his wounded ego. He's embraced it. He's held on to it. And this destructive anger, he just nurtures it and nurtures it. It's three years later, and Harlan's playing for Manchester City. This is what it says. Harland had been mouthing off, but I hadn't forgotten Alfie. This is Keane's voice again. Former Man United captain Brian Robson told me, take your time, you'll get your chance. I'd waited three years for Alfie. Now he had the ball on the far touchline. He was asking for it. I'd waited long enough. I hit him hard. The ball was there, I think. Take that, you... And don't ever stand sneering over me with fake injuries and tell Weatherill there's some for him if he wants it. And you, and you think, okay, Roy Keane, that doesn't surprise me. But actually, Roy Keane wanted to violently hurt Harland. If he'd done that on the street, he'd have been in prison. You do it in the sports field, you get away with it. But yet, I don't think he wanted to murder him. But I think if, if he could have got away with it, who knows? Because there's this kind of three and four, Three and four years of this kind of smoldering anger and I want to get him. Whether it was right or not, I don't know. But we all do that. When we retain our anger long after the occasion for it, we allow its, its intensity to heat up to the point where we suddenly lose it. We flip out. We're in red mist. And we rage on with regard because we feel we've been mistreated. And, and, and we engage in, I've got to make this right. I've got to rectify this wrong. And it's a, a crusade for self-justification. And maybe you don't feel it that intensely. But when you have anger, that's what it is. You feel I, myself, has been wounded and hurt. And I have the right to take justice into my own hands and hurt the other. Dallas Willard, in his brilliant book, which I was going to hold up, but I forgot, uh, it's, it's some years old now, it's called the, the Divine Conspiracy, and he's talking through Matthew, so I'm going to quote him a lot in this. He says this, two quotes from him. Anger, indulged, always has in it the element of self-righteousness and vanity or pride. The importance of self and the real or imaginary wound done to it is blown out of all proportion by those who indulge in anger. 
Anger can become anything from low, burning resent to a violent crusade to inflict harm on the one who has thwarted us or, or our, thwarted our wishes or bruised our sense of justice. It may explode on anything or anyone within reach. And Jesus is talking about this, this, this well of anger that's come, that's from a hurt somewhere that explodes elsewhere, that, that destroys communities and, 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 and leads to, to violence and, and destruction that can just explode anywhere. And you think, where did that come from? Dallas Willard again, anger, embrace, causes the disintegration of the human personality. Say that again. Anger embraced causes the disintegration of the human personality. It does not need to be acted out to poison the world. It cannot be hidden, feeding upon our hearts by just being there. All our mental and emotional resources become focused on nurturing the hurt and stoking the anger. We constantly remind ourselves how wrongly we've been treated so that our actions are ruled by anger with heart-destroying consequences for ourselves and in the hearts of everyone we touch. It's pretty destructive. It's in us all, in some sense. It's interesting, we kind of try and wriggle out of it, don't we? So, I don't know uh, if any of you read the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, I mean, I would ask if any of you read the Bible at all, but let, that's another talk for another day. Uh, but if you read the King James, <laughs> it... <laughs> Sorry, no, 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 that was kind of, was that a bit of anger and self, self-righteous judgment? And Lord, help me. You can pray for me then. I, by the, yeah, no, no, I mean, no, no, I won't say that. Uh, okay, but it's interesting, you read the King James Version. They, they, the, the, the translator of the King James Version has added three little words. It said, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause will be in danger of judgment. Why, why, why have they added without cause? Because... I mean, it's like, does Jesus' words need to do a need a little bit of help? What Jesus is really saying, it's okay to be angry with a cause. And you might say at this point, aha, I've got you. Because Jesus was angry. Yeah? Anyone thought that? Ah, maybe the translator's thinking, ah, but Jesus was angry. I need to get Jesus off the hook. You know, but, but actually there's an interesting thing. There's a difference between Jesus' anger and most of our anger. Jesus' anger is not the dark, destructive anger of the wounded self. He's angry about other things. So you, for example, he goes into the temple, and the traders, they've turned it into a marketplace, and he gets, uh, makes a whip of cords, and he turns over the tables. Uh, actually, it's really interesting. Um, Tim Keller says, the person that owns the house is the only one allowed to rearrange the furniture. So in one sense, you know, he is allowed to turn over the tables if he wants. But Jesus goes into the house, and he turns over the tables, and he's really angry. And, and he's, he's not angry because he has been wounded. He's angry because what's happened is they've turned the place where the Gentiles, that would be most of us, unless you're Jewish here, where we're supposed to pray and find God, and he's turned that into some trading floor. And Jesus is angry about that. Jesus is angry when, the, when, when he heals somebody on, the, on, 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 on a Saturday on the Sabbath and they're more bothered about whether the, the Sabbath rules have been broken than that the person that was blind can now see. And Jesus gets angry about that. 
D.A. Carson, famous American theologian, writing about this, says this. Indeed, there's a place for burning with anger at the sin and injustice in the world. And we've heard that in the, in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the same word as justice. It's okay to say I'm looking for justice, but not for yourself. Not for yourself. For a broken world. Indeed, there's a place for burning anger and, uh, and, and, sin, and in, uh, sin and injustice in the world, a hunger for justice. Our problem is that we burn with indignation and anger, not at sin and injustice, but the slightest offense to ourselves. When Jesus became angry, he never, never was his personal ego wrapped up in the issue. More tellingly, yet, when he was unjustly arrested, unfairly tried and illegally beaten and mocked contemptuously and spat on raka and crucified, go to hell. When he had every reason for his ego to be involved, he did not retaliate, says Peter, nor suffering. He made no threat, says Peter in his letter. From his lips came those gracious words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what we do. And I guess some of us understand this righteous anger. We understand righteous anger when, when we see a pensioner perhaps attacked by muggers or we read of domestic abuse or the exploitation of children or forced slavery or child prostitution. We, we, we feel a sense of anger, yes? We should. You know, when, the, when a refugee's boy, body of a refugee boy washes up on the beach, we should feel this is wrong. But actually, most of the time, those things that are really wrong in the world hardly raise a flicker with us. For me, the only flicker it raises is the flicker that changes to another channel. What, the war in Syria again? But when it's me and my stuff, or you and your stuff, suddenly we're focused. We feel justified. We always feel we have good cause. And I think it's interesting that, that, that you know, and, and I need to tread carefully now, but there's a sense where we've become so sensitive because in our society to be a victim gives power. And I'm not saying there's not real victims. I'm not saying there's not sexism. I'm not saying there's, you know, people of, who, who struggle with their gender identity. I'm not saying they've never, ever been uh, vilified or hurt. Or whatever, that, you know, that people because of their race have never been hurt. It's true, it is, and we should, feel, we should feel angry about the injustice in the world. But actually what we've got now is that, that, that you've got to be, re- what anger needs to be embraced. I am a victim, somebody's done this to me, it needs to be embraced, I need to express it, I need to release it. You know, it's part of my self-assertion to, to release my anger. I heard of a university campus where uh, a university lecturer, white, middle-class male university lecturer, asked a female South Asian student, where are you from? She complained to the authorities. Well, it's, it's racism, isn't it? Because you're saying I'm not from around here. You're not really American. And I kind of understand what she's saying. If she suffers racism all the time, but there's a sense where we're so sensitive now. So sensitive now that anybody 
says anything or anybody says something that we feel, whoa, I have a right to say to them. It says in Proverbs, it's, it's righteous to overlook an offense. But there is this sense with us where we, we just keep on stoking it. You know, and, I, and you need wisdom to separate righteous anger from injustice in the world and anger from like, I'm just kind of sucking in. Because in the end, it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't sort it out. I could see you're all processing now and think, is he some sort of right-wing nasty person? Or is he woke? I'm not sure. He mentioned transgender. I'm not really sure how to put him in a box. So, Okay, I'm trying to be biblical. Okay, so point two. Jesus says, sort it. Reconciliation now. Uh, we support a church as a, uh, in, at God First called Reconciliation Road. It's on uh, the junction. Lanzi and I had pleasure to visit it. It's, it's in Durban, uh, Mams and Toti. And it, it's on the area between the, where the white suburbs during apartheid touched the black township. And this guy, Gareth, he's a white guy, he said, this church should be for both. It should be both. He's had some kickback. Black guys have said, oh, you're just patronizing us. You don't really know what you've done to us. White guys have said, what, we're not having, that's not what the kind of church we're going to be, is it? It's easy to look down into South Africa and see it, isn't it? But it's, it's there. Jesus says, sort it. What are we to do? Jesus says, if you're presenting your, a sacrifice of worship at the altar in the temple, you suddenly remember that somebody has someone against you. Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. And then come and offer your sacrifice to God. He's not saying, hey, now, in the middle of the sermon, if you just realize that you fell out with your boss, it's time to hop out of the meeting. In fact, I'm so angry with, with everybody on my street that like, I'm not coming to church because, you know, he's not saying that. What he's saying is that when you come and offer a sacrifice, that sacrifice is reconciliation. It's the, the blood of an animal that, 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 that says that your sins are covered so you can have a relationship with God. And it's the same with, with Jesus. His blood reconciles us to God so that we can have a relationship with God. And he's saying it's ridiculous for you to be bringing a sacrifice to have reconciliation with God and then hate your person around you. He says that's just incongruous. Sort it out. If this is real, that's got to be real. John, in his letter, says this, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hurts his brother or sister is a... Say it. For whoever does not love their brother or sister who they have seen cannot love God who they haven't seen. Don't say, who's my brother and sister? Because that's what the Samaritan did, didn't he? Who is my neighbor? Don't do that. It's not saying, well, you know, it's not my brother and sister. It's the stupid boss at work. It's not saying that. It's saying someone in your community. That means anybody you're in touch with. Whoever does not love their brother or sister who they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. He has given this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Jesus puts a huge high priority in and making sure relationships are sorted. I sometimes stagger me. Uh, not so much in, in, in Cheltenham because we're quite nice, aren't we? But in Manchester, like the number of times I'd talk to church leaders and they're like, oh, I'm so exhausted. They're like, the church is all falling out and hating each other. And I think, what, what, why did it do that? You know, I'm so tired of the politics. You know, staff falling out with each other, this, that, and the other. It happens in church, doesn't it? Why are we like that? Jesus says, sort it out. 
We need to place a high priority in repairing broken relationships. Are we prepared to lay down self-justification and wounded pride to be reconciled to one another, to reconcile those that hurt you? Or are we saying, well, actually, I just need my moment with that person because I just need to tell them what they've done. You know, I need to hurt them. They need to see my angry face. Or I'm going to shun them and not speak to them because they need to feel the pain that I felt. Jesus says, no. No. We need to embrace forgiveness. Jesus says, settle the debt with your adversary quickly or you'll be thrown in prison. And if that happens, you won't be free until you've paid the full debt. He is talking about like financial debt. But he's saying is actually deal with it. Because if you don't deal with it, you're going to end up in prison. People who can't forgive become harder and colder. Unforgiveness imprisons you in a world of distrust and bitterness and pain and the quest to get even. And forgive, forgiveness always costs. It always does. I've read, I'll read this quote. I've read it before, so I think it's ever so good. It always costs to forgive. It's not cost-free. Tim Keller says, we're seriously, when we are seriously wronged, we have an indelible sense that wrongdoers have incurred a debt that must be dealt with, that can, simply cannot be dismissed. And there are two things we can do to it. You can make the wrongdoer suffer so that you begin to feel a sense of satisfaction as the wrongdoers are now paying off their debts. You hurt me, I hurt you. The other option is you can forgive. You can absorb the debt yourself, taking the cost completely on yourself instead of taking it out on one of the wrongdoers. Who did this? Jesus did this. Jesus paid. He paid. You think, oh, God's really angry. No, Jesus paid. He had right to be angry. The broken injustice in the world. But he's not taking it out on you and me. Jesus paid. The thing is, though, that if you make revenge, if you choose revenge and choose not to forgive, and if you break off the relationships and punish the other person, you can passively or actively wish your retaliation will inflict some kind of pain on their life that you've suffered. But here's the thing. If you make the choice for vengeance or revenge or anger, You're making vengeance or revenge or anger your savior. You're saying, if I can get even, if I can inflict that on them, if they can feel the pain I feel, then I'll be free and justice will be done. But that's never the savior. We know that. The Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland know that. You know, it, it... Revenge and revenge killings don't make it better. They just make revenge killings. And, you know, the, uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis in Gaza, the Capulets and Montagues in Romeo and Juliet, killing doesn't do it. Revenge never works. It just cycles down into this deeper and deeper well of anger. Evil does not make evil disappear. It just spreads it. When you make your desire for revenge, your savior to heal you pain, you don't get even, you just become more angry, more unhappy, more empty, more bitter. If you go for revenge, you just become more and more imprisoned. Now let's just say a couple of things about forgiveness and then I'll read a quote on forgiveness and we're done. Forgiveness does not mean that evil is not evil. You hear people confusing forgiveness with tolerance. 
Forgiveness is not just accepting, tolerating, condoning, or excusing. It's not a Christian thing to say something that's not that's evil is not evil. You know, so if you're if you're a victim of abuse in a marriage, it's not like Christian to just soak it up. You know, evil is evil. You know, sometimes withdrawing from an abusive relationship, you know, just keeps on, it keeps on being the same. That can be a wise choice. But the thing is, though, you still have to forgive. You have to get out of there. Sometimes you've got to get out of there, but you, can, you still have to forgive. Because the truth is that, that, that if you don't forgive, then you just end up being an abuser yourself. One of the things I've, I've learned about people who struggle with, with alcoholism often talk with people who have struggled with alcoholism. My father's an alcoholic, and he used to come in and beat, beat my mom and beat me. And guess what? They've felt angry, and they've never been able to deal with it, and that is evil. And, but you know what? How are you dealing with that? Well, I, I drink a bit. I do sometimes lose my temper. You know, I'm married now. My kids stay away from me on a Friday night. You just never get out. You never get out. And forgiveness doesn't mean it Forgetting it ever happened when, when God says he remembers our sins no more. It, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean he, do, he forgets. Oh, I don't remember. What he's saying is he doesn't treat us as if that's defining us. He doesn't treat us. He doesn't interact with us on a basis about our sin. So if you commit adultery, your, your partner's a right to be angry. And she could or he could forgive you. But they'll still remember. They'll still remember. But they won't treat you on that basis of that sin. That's powerful. That's powerful. If we're going to walk in the steps of the, the great forgiver, sometimes we face tough moments. I, I've probably got one or two people who you know if you tell me about them say no I'm not having anything to do with them and I'm cross with them they hate my brother you know they hurt my brother or they've done this and I feel like they they deserve the cold shoulder and the, I'm just reflecting as I'm talking it's not in my notes and you probably can think Poof, maybe I've got some stuff right smack front and center of people that have hurt me and I haven't forgiven them this is my favorite long quote, and I'm done. I know I've been long. Sorry. Oh, no, I haven't. Yeah, I have. Now, now I've said that, you all think, oh, he has been long, hasn't he? Please forgive me. <laughs> if you've ever read the book, The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Bloom. Is it there? Oh, that, I didn't even use that quote, did I? doesn't matter. Well, let's read it, shall I? When you forgive, you give up the right to be the judge, jury, and executioner. You trust justice to the just God. You give up the wish to make them pay, the self-declared right to hurt them back. You declare, I forgive you, you owe me nothing. Corrie ten Boom, slide. She there? Corrie ten Boom's the, the lady on, on your left. She was taken to a, she was Jewish, Dutch-Jewish, taken to a concentration camp with her sister Betsy in, in the Second World War to, to Ravensbrook. 
She was a Christian before and she held on to her faith all the way through. But her sister died in the camp. Did her mum, father. She escaped. She writes this. It's long, but it's... It was 1947. If you're bad at history, that's two years after the war. It was 1947. I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany. I was in a church in Munich, and then I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray coat and brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I'd just spoken on the message that God forgives. It was the truth they most needed to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because Holland is near the sea and never far, the sea's never far from my mind. He says, I like to say that when sins are forgiven, they're, they're thrown into the sea. When we confess our sins to God, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean and they're gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw an overcoat and a brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbones. He came back with a rush. The huge room, with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp, beneath parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrook. Now he's in front of me, hands thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is that you, you, to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocket rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he? I was one prisoner among thousands of women. But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time I'd been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravenbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know God has forgiven me the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Hand came out again. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, and those sins that had, had every day to be forgiven, me of my sins, I know I needed forgiven, but, but I couldn't forgive him. Betsy had died in this place. How could I, he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? I could not. There have been many seconds. He stood there, hand held out, but it seemed to me hours I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives stirs us, that we forgive those who forgive those that sin against us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will my Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it was not only a command of God, but a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I'd started a home for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their scars, no matter how deep their physical wounds. But those who nursed bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, 
But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. But Father, you supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. A current started in my shoulders and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hand, the former SS guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I've read that story so many times. And it still moves me. How could Corrie ten Boom forgive? How could she stretch out her hands and forgive? Because she's a disciple of Jesus. The one who stretched out his hands. Nailed to the cross so he could forgive us. Corrie ten Boom could forgive because not only did she understand the sacrifice that Jesus has made, that she knew that that sacrifice meant that she must love her brother. How could she love her enemies? Because God showed his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So, there we have it. The band is going to come back. I'm going to think. You might cry a bit. I'm not trying to stir your emotions for the sake of stirring your emotions. But some of you have got deep stuff. All of us have got stuff, but some of you have got deep stuff. And you feel like, well, I've got a cause. You know what they did to me. But the truth is that you never be free. Until you learn to forgive. And you know, I was talking to some people this week and I said, it's a cycle. You forgive and you think you're through and then it comes again. You forgive again. And it goes deeper and you forgive again. Sometimes you can't, and sometimes you don't want to, and sometimes you're angry, and somebody will think, who's going to do justice for me? But we trust justice to the Savior, don't we? And if you've got something against me, please don't form a queue. You know, people come to me and say, you spoke harshly, or I was on the PA and you were really grumpy. Let me just get my apology now. Sometimes it stuffs bubbles you know because I'm broken like you but there's healing for all eh so let's stand I've gone on longer but I didn't want to skimp this let's stand and we're just the band's going to play we're not going to sing and I want you to search your heart to do business with God can you take this for me You know, there's a prophetic word, wasn't there, about pain. The way out of pain, the way that God redeems and restores, is we forgive. Just reach your hand with me and just, perhaps your mind, mind might be going now to, to someone. Or some horrendous moment. you don't want to stretch out your hand but you're saying 
in my heart I can, Jesus, you provide the feeling. Maybe some of us have just become this angry little pool of wounded ego and we don't even know anymore why we're thrashing out. We don't even know anymore why we're like this. We need the Father to forgive us. So pour your grace on us, God. Lord, we look at Corrie Ten Boom and think, wow. But look at you, Jesus, and think, oh, Jesus, so amazing. So just quietly in your heart now, just say, God, I forgive. You supply the feeling. Don't mean you've got to walk back in there or try and sort it out. Just in your heart, forgive. And there might be a moment where you need to meet the guard face to face, as it were. But right now we're just going to say, Father, soften our hearts. As we come to the altar, because you've reconciled with us, we say, let us be reconciled with the world. So if you're a Christian this morning, you've got hope. Because you've got a saviour who can make it right. You've got a saviour who can transform it, who can heal and bring forgiveness. And that's why we do this every week. Because we need him. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, come on. He's the best. Come and say, I need forgiveness from him. And then forgiveness can flow to others. We'd love to pray for you. Just come, grab me, grab Naomi, grab people at the front they'll pray for you grab if you want to become a follower of Jesus this morning This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.